From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, we speak with Cornell professor and author of The Half Has Never Been Told, Edward Baptist, about the cotton industry in the 19th century and its overall impact on the American economy. Also, Reverend Will Bass will join us, the executive director of the Institute for Dismantling Racism, to discuss what racism looks like in 21st century America. That's next on The Public Morality. We tend to think of slavery, that peculiar institution that some refer to as America's original sin, as something that was specific to the South. And if we were referring to the actual praxis, that would be largely but not completely accurate. From the country's inception, with the Three-Fifths Compromise, Missouri Compromise, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, the Dred Scott decision, to the Civil War and beyond, the impact of slavery has been a perpetual thorn in the nation's side. In his retirement, Thomas Jefferson describing the institution of slavery and the problem it presented for the nation stated, We have the wolf by the ears. We can neither hold him nor safely let him go. Justice is on one scale and self-preservation in the other. Slavery is largely seen today in the context of a moral problem within the South. But how much does slavery benefit the nation economically? Was slavery in the 19th century synonymous to what oil became in the 20th century and the importance of the microchip in the changing landscape of the 21st century economy? To grapple with the economic impact of slavery is my guest, Professor Ed Baptist, Associate Professor of History at Cornell University, where he specializes in 19th century America, and particularly the South. He is author of the 2014 book, The Half Has Never Been Told, Slavery and the Makings of American Capitalism. This is an important narrative that moves one reviewer to write, Mr. Baptist takes apart the myths that our society has created to make us more comfortable with our slave-owning past. Where did the title of your book originate? Well, specifically that comes from a statement made by a man named Lorenzo Ivey, who was born in Danville, Virginia in 1850, enslaved. Uh, he saw the end of the Civil War. Uh, walked to Hampton Institution, a lot like Booker T. Washington, and became a school teacher. And he was interviewed late in his life by the WPA, by employees of the Works Progress Administration. That was a New Deal agency that went around the country, among other things, interviewing formerly enslaved people. And when his interviewer said, what was slavery like, he said, truly, son, the half has never been told. And by this, I think he meant that we had just the surface of the story. We were hiding as a nation from the reality of it and proceeded to tell his interviewer a little bit more about that story. So I, I was really struck by that, um, by that interview because what I was finding everywhere in my research was that, in fact, even though we've done a lot of work since uh, 1937 uh, when he was interviewed to, to uncover more of this story, the connections between the development of slavery and the expansion of slavery, which was something he witnessed in Danville, Virginia, was on the main path of the domestic slave trade. Even though we'd done a lot of work to understand that, there was a lot more, maybe even half of the story, that we still were not putting together with the rest of American history, and that's specifically the economic impact of the extraction of labor and knowledge from enslaved people in the cotton fields. Why don't we, uh, why don't you, rather, um Put into context the importance of cotton in the 19th century. Well, I think you've already done a little bit, uh, maybe a whole lot of that, by comparing it to uh, the impact of oil on the 20th century economy and perhaps the impact of the, uh, the microchip on the 21st century economy, because cotton was the key commodity in driving forward the Industrial Revolution of the 19th century. And that's, that's the process, that's sort of shorthand for the process by which Western societies stop being primarily agriculture economies, agricultural economies, and become industrial economies, where most people don't work in the fields. They work in factories and offices and so on and so forth. And in order for this to happen, a lot of changes had to, had to take place and, and did take place. And one of the key was the creation of the factory system itself. And the factory system itself starts with a textile boom, a boom in the production of cotton textiles. And every country that's gone through an industrial revolution so far seems to start with cotton textiles. And as it turned out, uh, enslavers in the U.S. South 
were able to uh, force enslaved people, the enslaved people over whom they had so much power and dominion, to produce cotton more rapidly, more efficiently than any group of cotton producers anywhere in the world. So now approximately what year is did this, did this begin? You start to see the beginnings of the uh, cotton textile factory system in, in England, specifically around uh, Manchester in the 1780s and the 1790s. Uh, and the demand for cotton starts to increase during that time period. That's right around the time that, uh, and in fact, is one of the causes, one of the incentives for the invention of the cotton gin, which we hear about as the invention of uh, Eli Whitney. But actually, he was he was putting together a lot of innovations uh, made uh, carried out by enslaved craftsmen in South Carolina and Georgia, and that improves the speed of the processing of cotton once it's brought in from the fields. But what's still the slowest part of the process is the picking of cotton. Uh, and enslaved or free farmers could always grow more cotton than they could pick before the winter rains came and ruined what was still left in the field. So slave owners from that point forward, from 1791, work as hard as they can to drive enslaved cotton pickers as fast as they can, and they succeeded in doing so. Between about 1800 and 1860, they increased the efficiency of cotton picking uh, by about 400%, four times over. And this has a tremendous effect on the world economy because it makes this crucial raw material cheaper. So money can then be diverted into investments in all kinds of other things, like better and better machine technology for turning that cotton into cloth at cheaper and cheaper prices. I mean, just when you start talking about, I guess, market share, this this is an amazing productivity given the fact that this is a fledgling nation and it's really grappling up the profit, uh, the market share of cotton worldwide. Am I correct? That's right. That's right. But but the advantage, if you want to put it that way, that uh, the white citizens of the United States had at that point in time was uh, this extraordinary power that enslavers had over enslaved people in the South. They could buy them. They could sell them. They could move them. They could torture them. They could measure their production. Uh, they could count on the um, the wealth that would come from from their increase from the sons and daughters that they had. This is an extraordinary resource, if you want to put it that way, that enslavers and white citizens in general possessed, and they made um, kind of power. Well, I only put it that way to to uh, to set up the next question I want to ask. I mean, that's that's uh, the enslavement. Of, of African uh, descendants becomes, this creates this sort of um, tremendous multiplier effect economically, I mean, throughout, throughout the country and globally, correct? Right, right. And uh, one thing we have to understand, first of all, is that the U.S. has 0% market share uh, in cotton in 1790. Uh, and on the other hand, by the late 1830s, when you look at the Liverpool cotton market, which is the main market, it's like, the New York Stock Exchange is for financial products today. Uh, when you look at the Liverpool market, 88 to 92 percent year after year is, is being held by, by American cotton, and the amount of cotton that's being sold there has increased tremendously over that point in time. Now, there's something that you, you I think you, you talk about, you, you, well, you do talk about in your book, you know, just that massive upsurge from the the plantation owner's uh, uh, methodology. How was that uh, upsurge achieved? Yeah, that's that's the, the secret of the process, and, and that's the thing uh, that uh, I do have to say historians did not spend a lot of time looking at closely until very recently. This is this is one of the halves of the story that really hasn't been told by by historians, but it was told frequently. It was told frequently by survivors of enslavement like Lorenzo Ivey, uh, Solomon Northup, and, and uh, hundreds of other people. And the way it worked was this. In order to get more picking out of cotton pickers, enslavers would carefully measure how much each person picked. At the end of the day, they would weigh it, uh, and then they would write it down in a ledger, and they would compare it to the quota that they had for that particular individual. And if the individual had not met their quota for the day, they would be whipped. And they knew this was going to happen, so they worked as fast as they could in order to meet the quota. Uh, but as but as one man who uh, was born in Southampton County, Virginia, uh, home of Matt Turner, uh, sold into the slave trade, uh, taken to Georgia first and then to uh, Louisiana later, as, as, as he put it, he picked very well at, fast, at first. He picked over 100 pounds a day at first. This is in the uh, late 1820s. Uh, so more was exacted. 
out of him, he, he put it. Uh, and the whip was liberally applied to keep him up to the mark until his daily quota went up to 150 or 160. And you can see how over time this raising of the quota, as soon as people can meet it, pushes that average daily production up till you get that 400% increase over time collectively that I talked about before. So you could never... You could never say this is this is Joe's maximum. You could never reach that a maximum productivity. You just once you reach the goal, you, it just, they just raise the bar um, periodically. Yeah, and in a way, this uh, this makes uh, the the term that that uh, some survivors use, and which I've I've tried to pick up, it, it makes it even more true. And that term is torture, torture for for what was done to individuals at the end of the day if they didn't meet their uh, their maximum. And, and think about this: we don't usually call the whipping of slaves torture in, in public and textbooks and things like that. We talk about labor discipline. We have all kinds of other euphemisms. But it was torture. It was torture as a physical act. But it's also torture in the sense that, that torture was used on people at Abu Ghraib, that it was used by the Inquisition, that it was used by the Roman legal system. And that is a, a process of pain that is designed to extract a truth from people. Of course, a truth might not really be true, right? It might be what the torturers want to hear. Uh, but it becomes their truth, right? And the truth in this case is how much could someone pick? How much, if you think about 12 years of slave, how much could Patsy pick? Well, right. that was a number uh, that was always getting changed, but that new truth was always being forced out of her. You know, I have this thing where I always uh, encourage uh, people to read the Declaration of Independence and to read the Constitution. I think I think that should be an annual ritual. But with that said, though, I guess I'm gonna, what I want to ask you is professionally as well as personally, in, in the work that you've done, and uh, especially in this book, what, what should we do with Thomas Jefferson? Huh. Well, I, I've taught this class maybe three times now, Jefferson and Lincoln. And, uh, you know, I understand there's a lot of critique of... of I want to audit that. Next time you teach it, I'll come up to Ithaca, right? <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of critique of Lincoln, too. But, you know, if you look at the direction, Lincoln moved in his life to the point where, right before he shot, and this is why he shot, mm -hmm. uh, he's arguing for black voting and black citizenship. That's why he shot. He shot for advocate. By God, I'll run him through. Was those Booth's last words? His yeah. words? Yeah. Yes. Um, and and I, think, I think we have to give, you know, some, some respect to that. Um, because in that sense he's a martyr. Um, but Jefferson moves in the opposite direction, and this strikes me more forcefully every time I, I teach the course. He, he becomes an architect of the expansion of slavery by the time he's president. Uh, and as after he retires, he spends a lot of time making excuses for what he's done and for what other Virginians and other enslavers are doing. And so every time I teach it, I have, um, <laughs> I have less, less use for, for Thomas Jefferson. Do you also include the unedited version of Declaration of Independence? I, 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 that's always fascinating to me. Yeah, yeah. There's some nice, there's some nice collections that you know we'll we'll put those two against each other, and those are those are great to to assign, so you can see the difference between them. And the point is, you know, he backed down. He backed down. The Union backed down. Uh, the, the, the thirteen states backed down from from what they could have done. Not everybody does. You know, you see a move towards emancipation in the North in the 1780s. 1770s and 1780s, but by, interestingly, by the 1790s, that slowly receded. And even those states that do implement emancipation after that point, like New York, implement these very slow, gradual emancipation plans in which uh, essentially uh, children that are born in slavery have to pay for their own freedom. Uh, and that freedom usually comes in uh, at best at 18 or 21, sometimes even to their adulthood. Uh, I live in uh, Ithaca, New York, uh, which is, you know, supposed to be one of the most liberal towns in the country. And, you know, in many respects, there's some truth to that. But um, I, I try to stay in shape by riding my bike around these country roads. And there's a there's a spot about 10 miles out of town where there's a historic sign that says, this is where the residents of Caroline Township buried their slaves in the first decade of 1800. So the North, the North had slavery for a long time after the Revolution. And... Um to, to, I mean, it's a perfect segue. Talk to us about uh, John Palfrey. Oh, John Palfrey, yeah. John Palfrey is a, uh interesting figure. Well, actually, both the uh, the older and the younger. So the, the older, the father, John Palfrey, is a Massachusetts merchant who moves down to Louisiana about 1800, and he becomes a, a planter. Um, he, uh, he fails in the mercantile business, but he's able to get some credit and becomes a major sugar and cotton planter. Uh, and that's... that's uh, 
how he makes his living. Um, and that's where he raises most of his sons. But the oldest son, also named John, he sends back to uh, Harvard for his education in the first couple decades of the 1800s, and he stays in, in Boston. And eventually, this younger John Palfrey um, becomes more and more uh, opposed to what he sees as the political power of the South. We have to remember that the, the South essentially controlled the White House, uh, though they did not have a majority in Congress. They had a, a kind of a stranglehold over the institution. They could, um, uh, if, if they couldn't knock down a veto, they could certainly filibuster all kinds of other things. And he becomes more and more uh, incensed um, by, by what he sees as the, the power of uh, John Calhoun and other Southerners over, over the country. And so he turns against his brothers, ultimately, when his father dies and, and he inherits about uh, 15 or 20 enslaved people, he decides he's going to emancipate them. And because he's not allowed to emancipate them by the, the laws of the state of Louisiana, he transports them up to Massachusetts, and there he emancipates them. You know, he writes about this experience and uh, makes some political capital off it, in fact. How do, how do we balance? I, I think that there's... That I've observed how uh, we, if if someone, we'll say Lincoln, and I'll just use the mythical Lincoln momentarily, the great emancipator, and that that's looked upon as though Lincoln, you know, you know, um, saw black people as equal and and so on and so forth, um, which may or may not be the case. There's a lot to say that that wasn't the case in some respects, at least the earlier Lincoln. But obviously, as you mentioned earlier, he evolved. But what do we do with Palfrey, who, at, at best, from what I read from what, you, what you've what uh, you uh, outlined, it was at best had a paternalistic attitude toward blacks, but yet is still moving toward emancipation. Yeah, and, and he's moving towards uh, personal emancipation, but he's not ultimately, I would argue, moving away from uh, an idea of, of white supremacy, uh, an idea of a society which African Americans at best would be sort of guest workers, as it were, uh, even even though their ancestors had uh, been there probably longer than Palfrey's ancestors. That, that to me, seems to be um, a very clear um, premonition uh, or prophecy of, of the way that emancipation and the status of African Americans uh, in, in uh, U.S. society would play out after 1865. Uh, so it's obviously emancipation is a very significant event, it's a, a very important uh, event, and, and it's on the whole a plus. But it, it turns out to be limited uh, to a large extent because of the attitudes of people like uh, the heirs of, of John Palfrey. Um, that's, that seems to me to be still the case today to a large extent. Now, I've, uh, when I was preparing uh, to interview you, I, I heard you speak... Um, on, on on one occasion, about you, you talked about the on the on the slaves part that they had to have conduct of what a split of consciousness being partially present, uh, partially not present. What, what did you mean by that? Well, uh, I, I think when we look at this four hundred percent increase in productivity, we say, how could it be that, that people would speed up their work to to that extent uh, without the aid of machines? some other kind of technology. And I, I think we can see in our own lives that it's, it's possible for us to learn how to do uh, repetitive tasks much faster uh, over time and to even figure out some shortcuts for them. But one of the most significant shortcuts, uh, I think, is this kind of dissociation from what we're doing once it becomes automatic behavior. Uh, and that's, that's something that, that I think had to happen for people and some people talk about it uh, they talk about the uh, the ways in which time passed or you know seemed to pass in a strange way they they talk about the um, um, North of instance, talks about the way that Patsy seemed like a dancer moving unconsciously uh, in the field and and that's those are clues I think to the ways that people were able to um, to survive days in the cotton and to ultimately get their right and their left hands working independently of each other as quickly uh, as could be. I think also probably they they found shortcuts um, 
they found ways to cheat the scale. They shared these things with each other. And sometimes they got away with these ways of cheating the scale. Sometimes they didn't, uh, and they were um, subject to, to still more torture uh, as, as a result. I think also that if we if we think about it, these are um, these are ways in which um, slave labor was uh, kind of a, a prophecy or a an early version of some of the kinds of repetitive labor that people had to do for the last century and a half. Uh, the social conditions uh, and the violence to which enslaved people were subject was, was for the most part, different. Uh, but, um, but at the same time, the, the kind of um, inhumanness of, of the work uh, that they were forced to do, the, the ways in which it didn't really uh, allow them to, um, to enjoy their, their work didn't allow them to own their work. It didn't allow them to do any of those sorts of things that we look for in work. But those, unfortunately, were um, were things that the future uh, has held for a lot of people ever since. Yeah, and still, you 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 write about some of their, uh, at least to the best of their ability, to still um, create a sense of community, uh, even though some. You know, family would would be moved, could be potentially sold away. They still tried to keep this sense of community. Yeah, they had to rebuild community, and they had to, in fact, reconceptualize who they were as individuals and who they were collectively. And to a large extent, I think that the period of time in which uh, African Americans decide, you know, that they are one people, that they are one nation, rather than uh, first and foremost Gullah people from South Carolina uh, or people from Virginia or mixed-race people, you know, from New Orleans or whatever. I think that point in time where the majority of African Americans decide that what holds us together is much more significant than what um, divides us. I think, I think that's in this process of surviving the domestic slave trade and the forced migration to the, to the cotton country, which affects both the people who are taken and the people who are left behind. Uh, and it even affects the descendants because they hear the stories. You can find some real measurable uh, uh, elements of this, I think, like, for instance, the fact that this seems to be the time period and the cotton belt seems to be the region where uh, so-called African-American vernacular English develops as people bring together their different accents, their different stories, their different ways of doing things, uh, and they merge them together. This is not to deny the, you know, the, the diversity, geographic and otherwise, among African-Americans, but uh, there, there's also this, this sense that you don't necessarily find uh, in other African-descended populations in the New World of a really powerful unity. Mm-hmm. I, I, I want to move just, uh, just so slightly. So uh, how deep is slavery embedded in the 19th century in the economic ethos of the nation? Was well, the economic engine of the nation probably should have said before, 50% of all the exports of the U.S. are cotton from about 1820 all the way up to the Civil War. And that brings in uh, the foreign exchange, the credit that's needed to expand not just the slave system, but all the other economic systems that are growing in the country at that time. And, of course, the U.S. goes through its own industrial boom a little bit later than Britain, and guess what they start with? They start with cotton textile factories. And then you have these so-called follow-on or knock-on developments in the, uh, in the economy of the North, and these, too, are powered ultimately by what's happening in the cotton fields, whether it's because they are uh, producing tools and other products to be used down south, uh, whether it's because they're investing money that's profits that are gained from the uh, um, extreme increases in productivity uh, down south, or whether because they are developments which build on the development of the context industry in the, in the North. The engine, the thing that makes the U.S. distinctive uh, and, and makes it a rapidly growing economy in the 19th century, of course, there, you know, there are many elements, but I would argue that the single biggest element is this uh, expansion of both uh, productivity, of, of both the, the area that's uh, devoted to cotton, uh, the numbers of people who are forced to grow and pick it, and the productivity of those who are picking them. How do you respond to those who 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 make the argument that the Civil War was ultimately unnecessary because slavery would in, eventually die out, which is, I guess, 
a market-based emancipation, if you will? Well, slavery in the world has continued since 1865. Uh, and in many places and times, it's been quite profitable. Um, forced labor uh, driven by violent torture was essential to the development of, for instance, uh, the, the Belgian Congo, um, this vast region um, of, the, of the European Empire in Africa. It continues today. So I don't see any reason to think that, that slavery would have magically disappeared in the U.S. When people make the argument, they usually assume that slavery in the U.S. was not economically efficient. But when you look at the per capita income and the per capita wealth of white people in the United States in 1860 on the eve of the Civil War, five of the six top states for per capita white wealth uh, are in the Cotton South. So uh, I don't know how else, I mean, there are lots of ways to measure efficiency and productivity and, you know, all of the things that would attract people, uh, profitability, that all the things that would attract people to um, become and remain invested in an economic system. But they certainly seem to have been, uh, all the measures I can think of certainly seem to have been uh, true for cotton slavery in the U.S. South. So I don't see any economic reason why it would have been abandoned over the next 20 or 30 years. And then when I hear you dis dis discuss those economic numbers, I, 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 that, I moved to the Civil War, and, um, and, I, and I know we can go on, and people do go on and on about the Civil War, but in one sense, given the, the, the wealth that you just outlined, which was not shared collectively by individuals in the South, um, does it in some ways make the Confederate soldier, if not a sympathetic figure, a tragic one in that he's part of that narrative of uh, common human history where the masses are placed in an untenable position of defending the economic interests of essentially a few? For the majority of Confederate soldiers, it's certainly true that they did not come from slaveholding families. Now, uh, we, we know that uh, depending on the state, you know, anywhere from uh, 15 to 50 percent of the soldiers would have come from slaveholding families. But overall, the majority did not. Uh, however, uh, they uh, knew, <laughs> certainly in 1861 when it started, what the war was about. The uh, secessionist politicians are quite clear that they're seceding to protect slavery. Uh, and furthermore, I, I think it's important to remember that in the slaveholding society and in, in the South, uh, the white individuals who did not own slaves still had certain incentives, whether they're psychological, like the psychological wage, the W.B. Du Bois talks about that sense of being superior to somebody and therefore wanting to keep that somebody down under them in status. Or if we talk about more concrete economic returns, we can see ways in which non-slaveholders were still invested in the system. I mean, think about it uh, in, in these terms. The average price of an enslaved young man about 18 years old at New Orleans in 1860 was something like $1,700. And that might not sound like much today, but if you look at it uh, through various kinds of economic conversions, because, of course, money in 1860 is worth something different from 2015, uh, we can see that the value of that slave was uh, anywhere uh, from $70,000 to $250,000 for one enslaved human being. And the prospect of acquiring one enslaved human being, uh, which was not out of reach for all uh, all of these non-slave-owning whites, uh, is, is sort of like the prospect of acquiring a house today. Um, there are ways to do it, even if you don't come from money. And it keeps you working. It keeps you invested in the system. It gives you a sense of belonging, uh, that sense of striving for that kind of achievement. And we know non-slave-owning whites did that. Uh, they aspired to get into the slaveholding class. They had economic incentives to do so, and they had real economic rewards uh, from the process of joining the slaveholding class, even if it was just to buy one human being. You know, one of the things that, that um, I love about your work is that it, it cuts across the grain of, of what is the traditional historical narrative, sort of bifurcates the 19th century American economy as one that was uh, slavery and the other that was capitalism that fueled the Industrial Revolution. And, and what I've gotten from reading your work is that that economic relationship between North and South is a lot more complicated than what I just outlined. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and 
I think it's important to remember that, uh, for instance, uh, what we would today call Wall Street, you know, northern financial capital was heavily invested uh, in the southern cotton crop and uh, in lending money that ultimately made its way into the hands of slaveholders and, and was uh, secured through mortgages and, and so on and so forth. You know, we just, uh, we just had the release of this database uh, about um, British slave owning in 1834 at the time when emancipation comes to Jamaica and places like that. Uh, and, and what we discovered from this new database is that tens of thousands of British residents, residents in England where there's supposedly, in Scotland, where there's supposedly no slavery, actually owned enslaved people directly or indirectly uh, in, in the Caribbean. And the same is true uh, of northern whites, whether directly or indirectly, thousands of them uh, are heavily invested in the slave system. So the relationship is very tight. The relationship is very real. But but I would want to add this, which is that, um, you know, it's, it was uh, it was great to, to write the book. Uh, it's been great to go out and talk about it and, and get various accolades. But people like Lorenzo Ivey were telling this story for a really long time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he was a school teacher, and the, the kids that he taught, they knew that story. They were telling that story. The school, the school teachers he mentored, I know, in fact, uh, because people from Danville have written me and told me uh, that his his nieces became school teachers, right? And they passed that story on. And generation after generation of African American historians, uh, many of whom were taught in those schools or mentored by survivors of the children, the grandchildren of survivors of slavery, they were putting this this story out there. And that's who I learned from, you know, in all kinds of ways. So this half, you know, it really hasn't ever been told. It just hasn't been listened to. Well, it hasn't been publicly told. How about that? It's been publicly told, right? Yeah. But publicly told uh, to a African American public. That's what I mean. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> not not to the not to the wider audience. Yes. Right. Right. Well, on on that note, though, I would be remiss if I didn't bring it up because I'm sure everybody brings it up on just about every interview you've probably done. But I, I want because it's fascinating the work you've done, and I just wanted to talk about that that initial pushback that you got from the Economist magazine, and, and just get, get your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, uh, maybe you know some of the some of the listeners aren't regular readers of the Economist, and and you know after. Economist last year, I can't hardly blame them, um, because they just published another, in some ways, very similar uh, review of Ta-Nehisi Coates' last book. But, but yeah, they, they published a review that uh, essentially argued that the, the book was too hard on slaveholders, uh, complained that, quote-unquote, all of the slaves in the book are victims and all of the, all of the whites are villains. And, um, and they got a lot of uh, pushback on, on social media uh, for that because I was supposedly too hard on slaveholders. Uh, and eventually they withdrew the review, uh, which was which was kind of funny. Uh, and, of course, you know, they say no publicity is bad publicity, which I don't know is always true. But, um, but I think this did, the repercussions of this did bring more people, not just to the book, but to the subject in general, uh, to a realization that um, there are still a lot of myths of slavery out there about slavery out there. There's still a lot of misconceptions. There's still a lot more work that we all collectively need to do in order to understand the effects of slavery on American and, and world history. Slavery in the U.S. in the U.S. was tremendously important for the history of all people living on the planet Earth today. So um, I just want to stay with the comments for just one moment. So they were essentially saying in, in Byron Williams speak, you were too much 12 years a slave and not enough gone with the wind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. I didn't do enough work to, to humanize the poor slaveholders. Yeah, yeah, and I, I know. Um, you know, you 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 touched around it, but I, I and I want to uh, want to amplify how important just to to what you were able to accomplish is reading those slave narratives. Well, that's crucial because uh, they've been used by historians before, but I think. Too often, maybe not always, but too often they've been used in bits and pieces. People dive in and they, you know, they're writing about an area in South Carolina, so they, you know, they find the 20 that are from that area and they read that, uh, or they're interested in one particular aspect. 
Now, what I did was I sat down, and I'm sure I'm not the first person to do this either, but I sat down and I read them all all the way through. And, you know, after, after there, there are 2,200 of them, and after a couple hundred, you know, what I started to recognize was, first of all, the similarities in the way that certain things were discussed. And then what I started to see was that there were stories before these stories. There was storytelling before this storytelling, right, uh, that shaped some of those similarities, a way of talking about things like the domestic slave trade. And the thing I use in the book to illustrate that is this discussion of being sold as being stole, this whole process of being bought and sold as being stolen, which, you know, was really was really deep, actually. It's, it's, uh, it's got a lot of layers of meaning there, right? Uh, and, and, in fact, really amplifies this idea of slavery itself as a kind of theft, a kind of constant theft. Uh, and and so what I started to realize was that, obviously, right, uh, the folks who were interviewed in the 1930s are children in the 1850s for the most part. And some people have said, well, this, this shows that they didn't really experience that much of slavery. But you know what they did experience? They experienced a whole lot of teaching uh, by people who had been surviving slavery for a very long time by the 1850s. And they took in that knowledge at this very impressionable age, and they used that to shape their understanding of slavery, which they then gave to the interviewers a lifetime later. And that was obvious, because otherwise you wouldn't find the same story in Mississippi that you found in Virginia, that you found in Kentucky, if it wasn't the case that people had been telling that story for a very long time in a particular way, right? Uh, and it had been transmitted with those individuals, right? So that's that's part of how the, the WPA narratives really, I think, um, spoke to me, uh, if you will, as I was reading, as I was doing the reading that ultimately led to the book. How do you, as a historian, you know, view the arguments today, defending uh, what is known, and I guess, I guess, widely accepted. Uh, as the Confederate flag honoring Southern heritage, how, how do you view that as a historian? Um, <laughs> you know, this is something. I'm I'm very lucky. My parents were both um, raised poor, white in the rural South, and at a certain point, um, you know, they made ch- choices to think about the world in uh, a different way from the way a lot of the people around them had, had thought about it. Uh, particularly in the 1950s and 1960s, when they were growing up, when the these fights about integration were, were very hot. Uh, well, you know, they, they always told me that the Confederate flag was the flag of slavery. It was the flag of the Klan. Um, you know, really formative experience in my in my childhood was um, the Greensboro killings uh, where you had the Klan and the American Nazis, you know, not only waving the Confederate flag but uh, killing, I think, five, um, five protesters, five anti-Klan protesters. Um, just down the road from me in Durham where I was growing up. And so I've, I've never thought about the Confederate flag as a flag of, of heritage, um, not of, you know, any heritage that I want to uh, I want to claim. And I think it's a – saying it's a, a flag of, of heritage is – obviously that's something that, that a lot of people in this country want to believe in, but it's just not a tenable claim. It's like if – you know, it's like Germans saying, well, wait a minute, the Nazi flag is part of our heritage. Uh, and it is, right? It is part of their history, right? It is part of their experience. But it doesn't mean that it's something that should be it should be claimed. It represents what it represents. And the Confederate flag represents something that, that to me, is equally as vile. So it's historically, it's probably not a coincidence that there are far more monuments honoring those who fought uh, for the side of the Confederacy that there are those in those same areas that honor slaves, the his, in the history of slaves. Right. Uh, the history of those who survived and the history of those who, who didn't survive. I mean, uh, there's there are many more stories, stories of courage in the survival of, of slavery and the overthrowing of slavery than there are in the attempt to perpetuate it. And that's what I think we should honor get behind this country if we actually want to be one country, one United States. Listen to you, I can't help but feel right now that in the post-Civil War America, there there has been almost a unspoken Faustian bargain, or maybe it was spoken, that slavery would not be part of the American legacy 
because of the inherent contradiction both internally to its own people but also throughout the world because we stand for freedom. And and um, I, I think our sort of approach to slavery now, and it's still we've gotten over that, is sort of how it gets pushed to the side, but it essentially was a false embargo. We don't talk about it in authentic terms. Well, I, I think um, I think when you look back at, at U.S. history, certainly over the last um, century or so, what we see is that large numbers of whites who, until I think 2043, uh, will be the majority in the U.S., large numbers of whites, north or south, have not supported uh, equality for African Americans and have not made meaningful moves to, you know, to, um, to realize that support, except when the U.S. is challenged, challenged uh, internationally to show that it is, in fact, what it claims to be, that it's not just a, a bunch of hypocrisy uh, for, for the U.S. to claim that it's this beacon of freedom. I mean, you see this in uh, World War II, uh, where the Roosevelt administration uh, takes some steps towards, for instance, um, allowing African-American workers, demanding the hiring of African American workers, in fact, in, in federally funded defense industries. Uh, you see this after World War II, where the U.S. is locked in the Cold War, and the Soviet Union, Soviet bloc, criticizes the U.S. for segregation. That's when you see Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, and Johnson moving to make uh, equality a little bit more, um, a little bit more of a reality and less of a myth. But then you see the Faustian bargain close in again, uh, as you see the Republican Party making common cause. South, uh, and, and uh, that brings us to our situation today. So, you know, I, I think I think only when the U.S. has been challenged to prove uh, that it is in fact uh, what it claims to be, that it actually does in some way live up to the words of the Declaration, live up to the words of the Constitution, live up to the words of Abraham Lincoln, etc. Only then do we actually see any meaningful move. That was Professor Edward Baptist, Cornell professor and the author of The Half Has Not Been Told. Let us turn now to an uncomfortable conversation. In its mission statement, the Institute for Dismantling Racism states, the Institute for Dismantling Racism educates, organizes, and supports communities and organizations in developing policies and procedures to create diverse and inclusive cultures. That seems like a tall order, when quite frankly it is. But our next guest is more than able to accept that gargantuan challenge. Reverend Willard Bass has been the executive director of IDR since 2004. In fact, it was his brainchild while attending Wake Forest School of Divinity. Bass is an ordained minister whose vocation is centered on building authentic communities of equity across racial and ethnic lines in all sectors of the community. In addition to serving as director of the Institute for Dismantling Racism, he is also assistant pastor of outreach at Green Street United Methodist Church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I'm pleased to have him on uh, to discuss a topic that remains uncomfortable for the nation unless it's forced upon us like an unwanted guest at a dinner party. Mm which is racism. Willard Bass, welcome to the public rally. Well, thank you, Byron. Glad to be here. Racism is such a loaded word in the English lexicon. One person says it, what do they mean? One person hears it, what do they hear? How do you define racism in the 21st century? Well, that's a good question, uh, Byron. Um, after um, wrestling and having experiences and training in this area of, uh, of race and racism, we find that it's more helpful to talk about racism in terms of institutional and structural uh, ways of being. So we have a definition that we use for racism. We simply say that racism is race prejudice plus the misuse of power, uh, the power of system institutions to either provide, I, my words, divide or uh, provide or deny the, the things of life. In other words, institutions are supposed to be, they're geared toward uh, managing, uh, distributing, you know, and creating these things of life, man. And so uh, the way we look at that is look at the outcomes of the institution. If, if, they're, uh, if the numbers show that they are providing their services and products in a fair and equitable way, then the institution is functioning in a way that they don't perpetuate racism. But in most cases, what we find, though, is that the outcomes show that in most cases, the, um, when you do the demographics uh, and break down the data, uh, usually people of color are the ones that suffer the most. What might be 
some examples today? Well, again, health health is a big one. You know, we, we talk a lot about health. As a matter of fact, uh, there's an effort right now is the IDR is involved with, the Freedom Trade IDR is involved with. Um, but I, I'll simply say that um, health disparities is a big indicator of the, uh, of the existence of racism. Uh, I know uh, institutions that uh, coined the phrase um, uh, Institute for uh, the Elimination of Health Disparities. I mean, we have several of them. I know what's the same state even has one here, and uh, and Wake Forest has had one, Wake Forest Baptist Hospital, and their goal is to um, to bring more more sort of bring awareness to, to um, disparities than it is to actually fix them. But uh, the data is still showing uh, that uh, health disparities you know still exist. If you take uh, infant mortality, for instance, we've tracked that ever since I've been involved with IDR. One of the first organizations that joined us back in 2014 was the health department, and what we, they were wrestling with was this idea of infant mortality, the idea that baby births, uh, premature births, were uh, were the largest for, uh, here in what's the for the whole state. And so they joined us, and the, and the data continues to show that. That's what I want to indicate that, is that uh, infant mortality still exists. I mean, it sometimes it tweaks down a little bit and goes back up, but basically the data shows that it tracks the same. So it says something about the way the systems function or what, they're, what we're focusing, uh, focusing on. So that's one good example. But when, in the public discourse, when we talk about racism and someone makes the charge, or for, for many of us, what comes to mind is that we see police dogs and fire hoses, and then people say, well, well that's not me. I, you know, I, I, I don't believe in that. So how do you maintain that sort of working definition in, in, in the work that you're doing? Well, again, uh, Byron, that's a very good question because it really gets at the crux of the work that we find ourselves doing now through the Freedom Trade IDR, and that is our focus is to develop what we call thought leaders, and thought leaders are individuals and institutions that, that have gathered all the tools and resources around understanding diversity, understanding cultural competency, but more important, understanding the dynamics of, of, of our way, of people's ways of being, and that means that, that cuts across all sectors of our uh, of our society. And so what happens is that because, again, we have been socialized and conditioned to understand our life experience in certain ways, we're automatically going to our, our um, what do you call it, our default. When we see someone different from us, we're automatically going to respond in a certain way. So if it's a situation of a black and white person, you're automatically going to go to this thing of thinking of that person a certain way, and they're going to think of you a certain way. And so that's really what, what then brings up, if you will, this, this um, uh, perception and then this journey, if you will, of beginning to deal with the situation through the eyes of race and racism. And in, in some cases it may not always be there, but that's the way we've been conditioned socialized in America is that, that something is up and we know that it's based on this historical context and it's racism. Mm-hmm. And then when we get into the situation, we, we can either, if, we, if we're willing to go through the situation very you know, critically and do the analysis of it, we might find that it's either racism or it's not. But in a lot of cases, we can never get there. And so IDR then has, has begun the journey of trying to be what we call intentional around understanding race and racism from the perspective of building relationships with people who uh, ordinarily wouldn't get there otherwise. And related to that, when you are examining racism, uh, what, do you, what are you asking the people that participate in IDR to examine? What the first thing we try to do is to help them understand there's several components to that, but one definitely that's important to us is the, is the historical context of race, how race was actually formed in America. So we do what we call a wall of history, and we start out in pre-Columbus, and we show how America was actually formed through legislative uh, bills and all this kind of stuff, and treaties, you know, the breaking of the Native American treaties, the bringing of the, uh, the Asians in the country, you know, to the railroads. We show all of these patterns, if you will, of intentional superiority, uh, kinds of ways of being, and then that kind of, if you will, solidify this idea of race and racism in America. We also want people to understand, though, that uh, contemporarily we have to find our place in that. But if we're going to go forward, if we're going to be, um, if we're gonna, ever going to work with this racism in a way that helps us to go forward, then we as individuals have to be able to acknowledge the racism in us. We have to re- acknowledge the role that we play, either subconsciously or consciously, and then work to really, you know, work out of that. You know, we got to see a person who they, you know, a, a person as a person first and not as their race. And so we really try to do things to help them do that. We, we talk about uh, more about implicit bias now, the things that we subconsciously bring to a conversation. We can talk about hiring. We can talk about all these different things that, that we carry these biases for us that, that help us and keep us stuck in this race construct. It also feels, at least to me, so feel free to correct me, that racism invariably in this country becomes a topic of discussion after 
something happens. Exactly. Whether it's Trevon Martin, Ferguson, Baltimore, the recent shootings in Charleston are examples that, that, that come to mind. Why does it seem that's the only time racism gets any traction in the public discourse? Yeah, I, that's a difficult question, man. Uh, like you say, it's always there. You and I, as, as African Americans, we deal with it every day. And we have to pick and choose the situation that we want to deal with or not for that particular day. So why is it then that we have to have a, uh, a national situation where some tragedies take place that we actually begin to address the, 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 uh, the question of racism and racism? And I think it's because it's so hard, man. It's so difficult. It's so entrenched in us as a nation. But at the same time, it, it comes with components of giving up and, and, and you know, and, and taking on. So um, I think it's because people... Some people don't know how to deal with it. Some people stressed out behind it. Some people get anxious when they even start talking about it. Some people are in a denial about it, right? But the idea is that it's something that's really going on all the time. We have to get to a place in this nation where we keep it on the table. I think President Obama has done a good job of trying to keep it there. But there's still a lot of pushback. There's still a lot of denial. But I tell you, in the work that I'm doing in this community, there's a lot of people, white people, if you will, that are willing to be there. They're willing to have those hard conversations. They're willing to engage in, in a way then that first, again, like I say, it deals with us first. And then from us, and then we go outside and we try to deal with it. But um, but the nation as a whole, the only way they know how to deal with racism is is a topic for a moment and then move on and then the next thing comes up. And yet the system still functions the way they do to keep racism in place because we haven't put anything in place. We haven't done anything about the policies and procedures and we haven't continued to enforce the laws that have been in place since the 60s. Well, when I hear you talk, it, 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 you, you make it sound almost, what's happened is almost counterproductive in, in that racism remains unresolved, but invariably it's discussed when emotions are high and always as a secondary consideration. Right. Which allow, so does not allow us to easily just to move on because it is secondary, like the Ferguson or the Trayvon or... Yeah. Exactly. Well, see, see, the notion of race and racism in the country, man, it's really uh, still as a black-white dynamic. And only time that it's, it's a problem is when it's, you know, it's like uh, a black person or a person of color is shot or killed, right? But otherwise, it's like, you know, it doesn't have uh, any merit. And then at the same time, it's perceived as a black and a people of color thing. But it's not. Racism could not exist without black and white. It cannot exist, if you will, without this dynamic of, of the other of the historical context of racism. Mm -hmm. So we've got to be able to understand that, that racism is a dynamic of, of whites and people of color, and that it's something that we have to, you know, keep in our face, and we have to keep dealing with it, you know, each day, man, each time. So um, there, there's the, the solution that I think I thought is really about building relationships, is, is staying in the mix, and it's dealing with the agencies that are causing problems. I mean, as well as you, you know as well as I do, what's the saying? We have a, some, some uh, actions now that we're doing with the police department. We're trying to engage them in a way to build relationships with them. And it's a lot of historical things that have happened in this community that cause our community, especially the, uh, the African-American community, to distrust them. But we have to figure out what that is and get at the roots of that so the police department can function in ways that protect and serve everyone. Well, in the work of IDR, how are you able to have these dispassionate, conversations that are otherwise uh, guaranteed to invoke passion and reactionary thought. So, well, we start off really now, and again, this is over the 11 years that we've been doing this work. We, we try to really set up the room. So the room is a place of safety. There's a place of vulnerability. But also we're inviting folks in the room to be very open and honest. You know, we don't think you can do this work if you're not going to share your story. And it's really about in the telling of the stories because every one of us has a story. And we're always very intentional about how the stories are told. So we always make sure we ask it as part of the question or the exercise that we're doing. You know, what is your experience of race and racism, you know, as you grew up? You know, was it something that was was uh, not talked about in your family? If it was something that was talked about, how was it talked about? You know, was it something that was re very southern, you know, in the way it was direct and in your face and they use all, you know, the N-word and all that? Or was it something that you, you witnessed as you grew up, but you never did have a chance to really talk about it, but you knew it was wrong? So we kind of get at it from that perspective. And once we get people to open up, man, it's amazing that the stories they tell. Uh, last night I was at, and again, this was, this was not directly involved to the work that we were doing, but I, I was at these teachings that we're having now related to the, to the, uh, to the Forward Together movement and what's happening on the 13th. We'll talk about that later, I hope. And, and, and the white people, man, they just opened up and started sharing their, you know, here from the, the northern part of Winston-Salem up in you know, Stokes County. And they grew up, you know, uh, very negatively. Well, they could, they would not even share this conversation if they didn't feel like they were in a room of people that they could share that with. And so I know that we're in a place now in Western State where we have, we have this community that we're, that we're, that's evolving and growing, man, where people are really opening up and really sharing their stories. And they're being healed by that, man, because that's, that's a part of it. There's a lot of brokenness in this stuff, too. Through the lens of your work, what did you think, Charleston, South Carolina? 
Well, I mean, you know, it's, it's one of the most tragic things that could have happened, man, because the last place that you would expect that, you know, a, a racist act would be occurred is in the church. You know what I mean? And and um, we have always viewed and accepted the, the church, that, you know, uh, to be a very holy and safe place. But it really it really uh, goes to the root of the issue again. It's this idea of how we deal or not deal with this thing of racism. And we've got evidently we're showing that we still have families that are being taught certain hateful, if you will, racist ways of being. And unless we're willing to get at that, then there's no way we're going to be able to uh, to finally uh, dismantle racism. Now, granted, I'm not taking anything away from the families. It was interesting that I read an article today by one of my colleagues, and um, they were concerned about the, the family had forgiven, you know, the, the perpetuator so quickly, you know. Um, but it's interesting that they uh, chose to uh, define, if you will, forgiveness versus grace. And so this family actually, according to this uh, article, expressed showed grace and not really forgiveness because forgiveness has a process with it. It's about forget. It's about acknowledging the the, the wrong, if you will, uh, repenting of it, uh, atoning for it, and then uh, you know changing your life. And so none of that has gone on. And so the the writer was saying that what has been given there is grace, the grace that God's given us, and the grace that we can show others whenever there's something tragic happens. But at the same time, it allows us to be able to move on with our life. And, and deal with life. And I think that's what the family wanted. They, I mean, it's tragic. I mean, they're going to deal with the grief and that, but they really wanted to have an example and they chose the, the nation that because, I mean, because it could have gotten bad. It could have been terrible. I mean, we could have had, you know, rights and all that. And again, I'm not reading their mind, but so it's mm -hmm. interesting how a tragic situation like this um, has been an opportunity then to open up and have greater examples of what it means to live in this racist society and, and do the work that we're doing. I think most would agree that those examples of grace, as, as you called it, is really what led to the momentum of uh, taking down the Confederate flag on, on public property uh, in South Carolina and elsewhere, because because other states you know followed suit. So, right. Uh, the legislature just recently uh, voted to, to bring down the flag in South Carolina of public property. Right. Is that enough? Well, you see, it, it, there's two there's two dynamics to that thing, man. Because if you just take away the symbolism, it doesn't mean that racism is done. See, so we have to be careful now. You know, we can take the symbols down, but if we haven't done anything to address the beast within, if we haven't done anything to actually put some things in place, again, it's about enforcement. It's about, you know, having examples of when acts like this happen, that there is going to be, you know, a, a retribution or whatever, whatever you want to call it, man. Something happens so people know that they can't do this. So, no, it's not done. Um, taking down flags and taking down license plates that have, you know, the, the southern uh, flag on it is, is, is really the first step, as I see it now. So now what we have to do is step back and say, okay, what are we going to do then as, as states? What are we going to do as communities now to make sure then that racist acts, you know, are going to be uh, eliminated? You know, what is it going to take to get there? And it's going to take some serious, if you will, uh, legislation. It's going to take some serious practices and policies around, you know, uh, private and public and, uh, and, and our faith communities as well. But, well, if you know, we, we, we talked about it earlier, um, that once we move past the symbolism, there will be a momentum to say, okay, we, we, we nailed that one. Okay, now it's over. And, and so will we have that kind of patience that you're, that thing is required for what you just said? Well, well, see, it's not about patience, brother. It's, it's about engaging. See, that's the idea. We have to be the ones engaged. Bree was a perfect example, and, and, and I know her a little bit, this, this the young lady from Charlotte. Mm -hmm. She's in the movement. And, and really check that out, man. She was able to do that because she has been connected to the movement probably from once it began. And I'm talking about the Forward Together movement. So this young lady, you know, knew something that needed to be done. She had the courage enough, man, to go do that. And so that it's going to be, it's going to take actions like that. It's going to take a continuation, if you will, of finding places where actions can be taken to continue to move this thing forward. It's not a waiting act. We cannot wait. We can no longer wait. Too many people are dying, man. This is not a way to that. We got to figure out a way. And this community has a lot of good things going on, so I think we're on the move. But it's, it's not waiting at all. We can't wait. So when people say to you, racism, we passed that, how do you respond? Well, first I have to determine whether the person is, is, is really sincere or are they just trying to be funny, right? Uh, are they trying to be, you know, narcissistic or whatever? And if, they, and if it, I think that it's a, it's a time that I can have a teaching moment. Then I'll go down that road with them. I, and I think that's a very good question, Byron, and, and we have to be intentional about it. I think every situation right now is an opportunity for us to engage in dismantling racism uh, and, 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 and developing a relationship. Uh, because if we don't, then we continue to have that. Uh, I was in uh, a meeting yesterday. We get preparing to do some work with one of the faith communities here. And, and one of the pastors had made that statement. He said one of his, you know, uh, congregants had said, you know, um, 
well, you know, you know, racism, you know, it, it's gone. You know, legislation, blah blah blah. And so I was waiting for him to see what he, to say what he did, right? And so I, I said, well, no, I said, you know, you, that's an opportunity for you to have a conversation with him, because if you don't have it, then. You know, it's continuing to be perpetuated. So you have to be able to have the conversation with him and, and give him examples of things then that show that racism is still in place and that you can make a difference in, in, in doing that. Willie Bass, thank you for being on the public rally today. And now for my closing remarks. Winston Churchill famously opined, history is written by the victors. But one might not be aware of this Churchillian adage in portions of the country that lionized Southern heritage utilizing a false historical narrative that makes slavery a secondary reason for the South fighting the Union Army. States' rights guaranteed by the Tenth Amendment was the justification for secession. At least that's how the narrative goes. But Jefferson Davis in 1861 had a different take. He stated in his farewell address to the Senate, quote, When our Constitution was formed, we find provision made for that very class of persons as property. They were not put upon the footing of equality with white men, not even upon the paupers and convicts, but so far as representation was concerned, were discriminated against as a lower caste, only to be represented in the numerical proportions of three-fifths. Davis's reason for secession was slavery, as was every state that left the Union. Ironically, the willing embrace of a false narrative of the Civil War is a profoundly American enterprise. It is to remember the virtue of westward expansion without the trail of tears and other brutal acts toward Native Americans. It is to recall the World War II as the greatest generation without Japanese internment or that some returning black soldiers were lynched in their uniforms in the South by those who did not serve. These examples are just as pregnant with irony as we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, but the original intent of that statement did not include unpaid laborers whose lineage originated in Africa. But to be a great nation, it is important to celebrate the high moments, but also equally important to acknowledge the low moments with courage, for that paves the way to a more perfect union. That's our show for today. The Public Rally is produced by WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Rally, I'm Byron Williams. <laughs>